Well, good morning. Today we're finishing up a short series, four-week series in the book of Ezra. Yes, that is a book in the Bible, uh, not Esther, Ezra. About six months ago, we started to pray about this series, and I realized in 40 years of hanging around the church, I don't think I ever heard anyone preach one time on the book of Ezra. So we're fixing that in the last couple of weeks. And uh, Ezra is an amazing book. It's a book that chronicles God's faithfulness and grace to people who had been exiled in slavery. And uh, actually, the book covers about 100 years. Uh, The preachers that have been preaching through our series have been mentioning some of those things. There's kind of three waves that took place. The first wave uh, took place after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. This was a rebuilding of the second temple under a man named Zerubbabel and the priest Yeshua. Uh, and then it was a reestablishing of a worship uh, uh, in Jerusalem. And Katie preached about that three weeks ago. The second wave was a returning of the temple uh, under Ezra. And another group came and uh, brought additional teaching and resources for the temple of God. And Nate preached about that last week. And the third wave has to do with uh, Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the city. We see that in the next book in the Bible, Nehemiah. But What I want to focus on this morning is that second wave out of Ezra chapters 9 and 10. Um, This was only about 20 years after the first wave had come, so the temple had been built again, the second temple. Things were proceeding in worship. But only after about 20 years, the nation began to lose their way morally, and they began to see problems develop just that quickly in the spiritual life of the nation. So if we look at Ezra chapter 9... This is Ezra speaking now, a teacher and a scribe, uh, a religious leader in the nation that God had brought back to have a significant impact in what was taking place in Jerusalem in that time. Ezra said, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and some for their sons, so that the holy race has been mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithfulness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. So just in 20 years, what had taken place was some of the leaders and some of the people began to marry into the the nations, the non-believing nations around them. This is something that God had expressly forbidden at that time. Um, and so it was, a, it was a big issue. Now, to us, it might not seem like such a big deal. You know, there's a good-looking woman across the river. Yeah, she, she's a Moabite, but, you know, I'll marry her. You know, it doesn't seem like such a big deal, an individual decision. But I want you to see how serious this was in the, in the flow of God's redemption history in the Bible start to see this in verses 4 to 15. You see the seriousness of this. Then all who, you know, I'm sorry, we'll start in verse 3. So Ezra said, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak, and I pulled out the hair from my head and sat appalled and beard. I, I could pull some hair out of my head. I have not, not much to lose there, but you take, start taking hair out of your beard. Now, now it's serious business. You can see how significant this news, how it affected Ezra. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithfulness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I was sat appalled till the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from fasting with my garment and my cloak 
torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord of God, heaven, saying, O my God, I am ashamed to blush to lift my face to you, O God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt. For our iniquities, our kings, our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. He's talking about those 70 years of captivity in Babylon and the fall of Jerusalem 70 years earlier. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown to the Lord by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving from our slavery. For we are slaves, and yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving and to set up the house of our God and to repair its ruins and give us protection from Jerusalem and Judea. This is what he's rejoicing to say. We've been in captivity, but God has brought us back. He's opened up a way for us to return to Jerusalem, and there's a, a measure of safety they were experiencing. This is an amazing miracle that God had done. But in verse 10, he says, And now, O God, what shall we say in this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you've commanded by your servants, the prophets, the land which you're entering to take possession of. But this is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, and their abominations have filled it from the end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may stand strong and eat the good food of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us from our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing you, O God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, you've given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments and your intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so there should be no remnant nor any escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for you have left a remnant that has escaped, as is to this day. Behold, are we, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This was a very, very serious offense that had taken place just in 20 years, a, a very serious error that the people of God had made. And it's hard for us to understand. This is an ancient scripture. It's, Andy, you can give me another mic if you want, but this is an ancient scripture that's, you know, 2,500 years old. So it's hard for us to get around, our heads around this, but I want you to see how serious this issue was. When he talked about intermarrying with the other nations that were around Israel, I just want to give you an idea of what those nations were about, kind of religiously. Uh, in 2 Kings 23.10, just this God of Moloch, what, what this was about. This is just one illustration of many. Um, and he said, He divided Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, that one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. So one of the nations around them had a big bronze god. They would heat this, broad to, this bronze god to red-hot uh, heat, and there were arms on the god, and they would place their infant children and burn them to death on the arms of the god of Moloch. That's just one illustration of the kind of nations that, that were surrounding this country. And this is why God was so serious about not intermarrying and not picking up all of the, the, that demonic heritage that those, those nations had developed over the centuries. So it was a very serious thing. We see this even in the life of King Solomon. He made this mistake. Uh, someone who was supposed to be the wisest person in all of history, the Bible says, 
And yet Solomon made this same mistake. We see this in Solomon in 1 Kings um, 11, 1 to 8. Now Solomon loved many foreign women. And he lists all the nations. And the Lord said to his people, you should not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. They will turn your hearts away after their gods. And so Solomon goes on to talk about even Solomon and married all these foreign women. And he began to start to bring false worship into his family because of the women that were his wives and set up these alternate worship places. And you see the destruction that took place in Solomon's life and then quickly after that, the splitting of the kingdoms. It's a very serious kinds of thing. Nehemiah dealt with the same issue, this third wave that I just mentioned about 20 or 30 years later, the problem came up again in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 13.23, Nehemiah says, In those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashtod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashtod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat them and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of our God. You shall not give your daughters and your sons to make your daughters to take their daughters and sons for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, on account of such women... Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil to act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? I'm trying to help you see what a big deal this was for the nation of Israel. Why, why were the stakes so high? The stakes were so high was because after the exile, they just about lost the plot in Babylon. And God had intended the people of Israel to be the, the people that carried the sacred scriptures throughout history and protected the word of God. This is the lineage of the people that Jesus, the Messiah, was to come from in four or 500 years through the Jews. This was a place that God intended this, this, this national group to be a blessing to all of the world and to teach the world about the true God of the universe, Yahweh, from the Old Testament. So the stakes were really, really high. And they had gone back and fallen back into the very mistakes that had brought them into exile 70 years before. And this is why Ezra was so concerned about it. There was a seriousness in their disobedience. We go on in Ezra, and and Ezra teaches into some of these things and begins to help them see how serious this mistake is. Um, And then in chapter 10, we see a radical solution is proposed. Chapter 10 says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself on the ground before the house of the God, a very great assembly of men, women and children, gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the, the house of Jehel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is a hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God and put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task. And we are with you. Be strong and do it. So the nation realized the significance of the mistake they had made and there was a great cost in repenting in the midst of that mistake. They actually had to send those wives and even some of those children born to them back to the nations and the families they had come from. It was an amazing, radical solution that the nation agreed to, but a very, very high price. Can you imagine the tearing up of what had taken place in these families that had to be done to get this thing right because they weren't listening to God? It was a radical solution and required radical obedience. 
We won't take time to read the remaining of the chapter, but, but Ezra goes before the people and they say, yes, we need to do this. And they set up teams of leaders in the communities to sort out who the marriages were. And many of those are listed in the last chapter of Ezra, the people that had made this mistake. But the people were obedient to God in this. And they stepped up and they said to God, we are sorry, we are repentant and we have to change this. And we'll even go through the pain of putting these women and these children away in order to get this thing right with you. So, fast forward to 21st century and us. What in the world do we do with this scripture? (laughs) Um, I think we start with this. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every work. The scripture tells us that everything in this book, every list, every dimension for the temple is inspired by God, and it's good for us. So we just need to take the time to sort through and wrestle what is, what's in that. And I do believe there is something for us today. This has already been an amazing morning hearing from the Lord, but I think there's more from, from the Lord, from this ancient scripture in Ezra, in Ezra 9 and 10. Before we go there, I think there's a couple things it doesn't mean. It's very important when you're looking at the Old Testament to read through the eyes of the New Covenant and the Old Covenant and recognize what was unique in history and recognize where we are, but then begin to see what's underneath the themes of God and the stories and plans of God that that would be the same for both of us. So here's a couple things I think this scripture does not mean. I think it does not mean that there's any special race or ethnicity right now that God favors. Some people would look at, you know, the scriptures and have made the mistake throughout the history of saying there's a certain people that are the, the people of God. And, you know, World War II was a, an illustration, an extreme illustration of that one group saying we are the people of God and to the point of, of you know, decimating other people groups. Um, so there is no people of God that God favors. Yes, God has a particular plan for the Jewish people and he's going to continue to, to fulfill his promises. But it's clear from the word of God that heaven's going to be populated by all nations all ethnicities, all languages. What God has done now since Christ in the forming of the churches, he's taken the spiritual heritage of Israel and the Gentiles who are most of us and he's grafted us into a new thing, a new family. So there's nothing special. There's no special ethnicity. This is what frees us from racism as we begin to understand this and, and our prejudices and the things that we were, maybe were brought up with. It. God is a God of the nations. And if, as you look around our church, I love this as a church of the nations. I love that we're praying for nations and connecting with people in other places in the world. This is the reality of who God is. The second thing I think that it does not teach, I don't think the scripture means that God is pleased with divorce. Um, you could look at the scripture and say, look, here's an illustration, and this, this is what God's saying. I think that's a mistake in this. The scripture is clear from the Old Testament. God says, I hate divorce. And any of you that have been through a divorce, you know why God hates that tearing and the difficulty that comes with that. So this is not a text for saying that, you know, there's a, that God, the divorce is pleasing to God. God has meant one woman, one man in that promise, one flesh relationship. That's the way designed. God has designed it. We don't want to misread that. But there are some things I think this text teaches us in the 21st century. The overarching umbrella, I think, for the whole thing is this. Obedience matters to God. Obedience matters to God. See, personal holiness has fallen out of favor with much of Christianity. 
A generation ago or generations ago, there was preachers and the church was sensitive to how I live matters and, and my personal holiness is, is, a, is a big thing to God and I want to be able to be sensitive and grow in that. But in the 21st century, in Canadian culture, in many of the churches, just not hearing much about this issue of personal holiness. It's about self-actualization. It's about, you know, bringing God into my life. It's about, you know, bettering myself. It's about, you know, prosperity. These are things all, I believe, in, in, the, correct, in the correct ratios. God is interested in all those things. But that's not all that God is interested in. I do believe he's interested in our personal holiness. He's interested in about the way that we live our lives. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's made the blood of Christ available to forgive our sins so that we don't have to stay stuck in the old patterns that we were stuck in before we knew Christ. This issue of personal holiness is significant and obedience to God does matter. We need to hear this as a church. We need to wrestle with this and struggle with this fact. This is not something from the last century and some ancient preacher on a sawdust trail talking about. It's still the message of God. It's still the heart of God. Obedience to God matters. And a couple things that come out of this passage, I think, that highlight that. Obedience to God matters because my individual decisions affect the entire church. Now, that's maybe a revelation for some of us today here, but we live in a highly individualistic culture in Canada. You know, it's about the individual, the rugged, I don't know if that came from, you know, living in minus 40 and, you know, freezing in the cabins or whatever it all came from in Canada. But we have a very kind of a, you know, I can do it. I am my own person, you know, that kind of mentality. It's part of our heritage in Canada. It's a highly individualistic culture. And we're constantly told through the media and all of our culture is that, My private stuff is my private stuff. So you keep your nose out of my private business. That's a a message. We swim in a culture like that right now. But what we have to realize from the Word of God is that what I do matters for the people of God. As a Christian, how I live my life, it actually affects each of you in this room, each of you that are part of even this own local church, let alone the church universal. We, We live in a culture that talks about victimless crimes, By the way, if you think you're getting away with a victimless crime, you're the victim. Talk about consenting adults, language of privacy rights. I get all this stuff, and there's a measure of truth in all this stuff, but it's a a culture that's developing that says, my little world is my little world. I can isolate the things that I do, and they have no effect on anyone else around me. That's not a biblical position. That's why we're called a family. How many of you know that if a kid goes off the rails, it affects the family, not just what the kid does? You know, we are a family together, and the decisions that we make affect one another, and they affect the purposes of God in our community. Why do you think a lot of non-Christians say, Jesus, yes, church, no? We love to talk about that, but actually, you know why? Because I have lived inconsistently sometimes in my life and they've seen the church who's me and said what a joke that's pretty heavy okay but it's a reality the way I live my life the choices I make make a difference in the purposes of God right here in this place right here in Nanaimo think about the story of Achan in Joshua I won't turn to it but you know might know the story in the Old Testament they came into the promised land in power Jericho the walls fell down and Achan one man saw some gold and some fancy clothes and and he said you know I'll just keep this for myself under this strict 
strict instructions from God that none of that was to be kept by the people. I'll just hide it in the floor of my tent. Nobody will know this is my little thing and it'll all be good. The entire nation was defeated in the next very simple battle and all the nations around them figured, okay, well, these guys are now easy pickings because of one man, one hidden sin under the floor of his tent. And God had to take the time to reveal that sin and sort it out and judge that man before the nation could get back on the track. See, we must come to the realization that we're not an island, but that we're part of the body of Christ. So obedience to God matters. It matters because my individual decisions affect the entire church. Obedience to God also matters because each decision I make comes with consequences. How many of you raised teenagers and survived? (laughs) Dean and I have had the privilege of raising three teenagers. We should get a bumper sticker, I survived three teenage daughters. Why is it that's such a difficult time for parents? Well, one, because teenagers know everything. That's, one of the, that's part of the problem. The second problem is they think consequences are for someone else, but not for them. Why is it every stupid video that some guy is skating off the edge of a, a building is a 22-year-old male? Why is that? Because gravity is for other people, right? My decisions don't have consequences. This is what's so difficult about raising a teenager. This is what keeps you up at two o'clock at night because you haven't heard the garage door open yet and your child's still out there. They think they can do things and there are no consequences. You're praying as a parent and you're helping to see the things that you choose will always bring consequences. I wonder if God looks at us like that. I wonder if I look like a stupid teenage boy sometimes thinking I can do things and the consequences won't apply to me. How many of you believe that running red lights is a bad thing? (laughs) When my daughters were learning to drive, I would pray, God, protect them. I don't want some clown running a red light that's drunk, you know? I drive a school bus during my, you know, school year. Lord, protect us from people that are running red lights. That's wrong. People shouldn't do that. But once in a while, I'll be in my truck and I'm in a hurry. And I don't run red lights, but I may have pushed an orange light. Do you know what an orange light is? That's, that's that moment between yellow and red, right? When I do that, I say that my decisions don't have consequences. Your decisions have consequences. I'm praying the clown on the other side's not jumping the, the green light, right? I don't want, I don't want, I want him to have consequences, but I don't want me to have consequences. We're about that. It does happen occasionally you'll get something in the mail with a picture from the motor vehicles department. (laughs) Not saying this has ever happened to me, but you know, there's there's a nice little photograph. It's in high resolution color and you see your truck in the middle of an intersection and the light is clearly red and there's this guy going like this. It's just a little picture of the fact that our decisions have consequences. Every decision has consequences. There is a principle in the Bible of sowing and reaping. Now, we talk about this a lot with giving, and we should, because it definitely relates to that, but it relates to a whole lot of other areas in our life. Let's look at Galatians uh, 6, 7, and 9. I'll just read it to you. The scripture says, Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for wherever one sows, he will also reap. 
This is an illustration from like farming. Whatever you put in the ground, this, the kind of seed you put in is what you're going to get come up. If you're going to put in oat seed, don't expect flax to come up. If you're going to put in wheat, don't expect canola. It's, it, that's dumb. It's just a principle in life. For to the one who sows to his own flesh, from that flesh he will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit he will reap eternal life. Let us not do weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. This issue, this principle of sowing, reaping, is a law in human humanity. God has set it up. It's like the law of gravity. You can say it doesn't apply to me. Jump off the building, you know? Then we'll pick up the pieces and bring you to, not, to emerge, right? It's a law, and sowing and reaping applies to everyone. Whatever decisions we make always come with consequences. Every decision comes with a consequence. You can't get away from that. You can't juke the system. You're not smarter than that. It's a law that God has put in place in in reality and humanity that he set up from the very beginning. So our decisions come with consequences. And even after forgiveness, the forgiveness of God and the grace of God, please, this was a challenging message. I've been sweating BBs and praying for weeks that I don't want to overstate this issue today. I don't want to bring shame because shame is not my friend and I don't want to bring false guilt because false guilt does, me, does, does you no good and does me no good. There is forgiveness of God. There is forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ for anything we've done. Jesus, that's the message, the central message of the cross. There is grace. God gives us what we don't deserve, eternal life. But what I need to say this morning, as soberly as I can, is even in the midst of forgiveness, there are consequences for our decisions. And God, many times, does not remove the consequences for our decisions. Yes, he brings forgiveness. But confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, 1 John 1, 9, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he does not often remove the consequences. So we have got to have a sobering sense as we live our Christian lives that there are consequences for the decisions I make. Just like the people of Israel 2,500 years ago who said, oh, what's what's the harm? She's a good looker, you know, come be my wife. You know, raise kids. Mom has a God, I have a God. I want the kids to know both of these gods. Very quickly, the nation loses the plot. There are consequences for our decisions. We must come to the realization that there's no such thing as hidden sin. The the devil loves that lie. He loves the lie of hidden sin. And it goes something like this. That thing that you're involved in, that you know God is saying is not good for you, that's, that's in disobedience to God's will, nobody will know about that. It's just between you and blank, whatever the thing is, the computer screen, that person, that whatever. Satan loves to talk about the hidden sin. But there really is no hidden sin. First off, from God, he sees everything. So if we think we can clear our browser history with God, it doesn't work that way, okay? No, God is a God who sees all things, and every decision we make comes with consequences. Again, please, hear me. I'm not preaching condemnation this morning. I'm just trying to help you see the way, the reality of the way things are in life. Everything we do, affects us and has consequences. So what do we do with all this? I think for me, this morning, as I've been wrestling with these two chapters for a couple of months now, it comes down to a commitment to personal purity. Again, it's just not something people want to talk about, personal purity anymore. 
But I want to remind you the stakes are high. What God is doing in the kingdom, what Jesus came to earth and gave his life for, it matters. We're not just messing around here. We're not just playing church. This is not just some fun place to come and hear a, hear a guitar solo. Lives hang in the balance in our communities, in, the, in our coworkers, in our neighbors, and the people we love. God has a plan for his salvation. He is going to come back. This thing doesn't last forever. Jesus is going to return and all things are going to be judged. Between the time Jesus comes and now, we're involved in that. We're partnering with God in that. That blows my mind. What a lousy choice to pick me. And yet God has, and he's picked you, if you know Jesus Christ, to stand in the gap. And the the stakes are high. No, No less high than a nation that was carrying the word of God, that was going to be the Messiah, was going to be born for, that was carrying the truth of the monotheistic belief of Yahweh as these as these believers were 2,500 years ago, we carry the message of God in our lives. And the way we live our lives matters. God has given us a body, not just a three-inch square mouth. It's not just what we say. It's actually probably way more important how the rest of our body operates than what our mouth says. Again, teenagers, they'll help you with that. There's so much at stake And I just want to be able to say as gently as I can this morning, but with conviction that consequences when we live, there are consequences when we live in rebellion to God's plans. My individual choices affect the whole community of faith and can hinder or accelerate what God wants to accomplish through through us together. That's sobering. My decisions... There's one thing that I know that I needed to go in my life. I've known it for a while. I've been dealing with it. And just in this middle, middle of this preparation, I just felt like, God, do you mean to tell me that my obedience to doing the right thing, which I know should be right, and this change that has to happen in my life, that affects the people in this room? Darn right. Not just because I'm a leader of this church, but because I'm a believer and I'm part of you. And finally, I just want to remind us that repentance sometimes requires radical and costly obedience. Don't forget, you're forgiven on the basis of Jesus' blood. Whatever you're carrying, now as I'm mentioning this this morning, you may be thinking of some things, you know, that that need to get straight in your life, okay? And the devil might even be nattering in your ear, oh, you know, how worthless you are. Don't hear that voice. Jesus' voice is is one of redemption and of healing. But... Sometimes repentance requires costly change. What these faithful people had to do 2,500 years ago in changing their entire family structures and the disruption and the, the, the tearing that came in place, that came with a great cost. None of which they would have had to experience if they had listened to God and walked in God's ways. See, we think God's commandments to us are burdensome, like, oh, he's a killjoy. He just wants to be a wet blanket and wreck the party all the time. No, it's, we've got that so wrong. That's from the devil. God wants to bring life and life abundantly to us. So when he's speaking to us about something that needs to get cleaned up and straightened up our life, when he's opening the door and saying, let me into that place, let me heal you and free you from that thing which has dogged you for two years or 10 years or 20 years or 40 years, it's not because he's a killjoy. It's because he knows it's hindering you. It's like a ball and chain to your foot that he'd say, just, I got the torch right here. Just let me just cut it off. You just, you just say the word and I'll do it. 
Yet we think, oh no, God's trying to spoil my life. No, man, walking with Jesus is full and life and, and overflowing and joy and everything is amazing because God's designed us. He knew what we were like. And yet this sin that so easily untangles us, holds us up. This is a pretty heavy word this morning and I've been praying that God would use it. But, but I, don't want us to, I don't want to let us off the hook because I want to do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. I'm not trying to put you on the hook. Understand, if I could do that, that would be shame. I don't want to be in that mode. I'm speaking to myself. I've been living with this thing for weeks. I know that kind of weight. I don't want to put shame, and I don't want to put false guilt on you, but I want you to be free in Jesus this morning. Just a couple of words from our Lord, and then we're going to finish up and just have a time of response. Brandon, if you want to come up, you can, if you're around somewhere. These are the words of Jesus. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. That's very free. This one, not so much. Luke 6, 46. He's speaking to believers here in this context. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Why would you do that? Why do I do that? The wonderful thing is all we have to do is turn and say, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to give us just a little bit of personal time this morning before we close. I know summers are busy and there's lots going on, but I do not want to rush away from a message like this in this scripture. What I want to do is I want to, if there's something that you're dealing with that you know God has said it needs to go in your life, I just want to invite you to come forward and just hang out up here. Stand up, sit down, lay down, kneel. I'm not going to ask someone to come pray for you. I'm not asking you to confess this to somebody. This is a private time between you and God. But I just believe that if we're willing to come forward, it doesn't mean you're doing something horrible. It doesn't mean anything if you're up here. Don't, don't feel that condemnation on that. It could be you're dealing with something very serious. Wonderful. God wants to bring you free, and there is freedom in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, but I'm just going to invite you if you want to come forward and just spend some time with God and say, God, would you help me through this thing? Come right now. Yeah, it's so great. Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this time right now.